This is Dylan Lawrence. He was just 16 when he was diagnosed with a diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. It's the deadliest type of childhood brain tumor. When the leader of the bad guys sang Something soft and soaked in pain I heard the echo from a secret hideaway Just weeks before his diagnosis in December of last year, he asked his parents and grandparents for his Christmas money early. He wanted to spend it on other kids. He wanted to make their lives better. I first learned about Dylan through a news article in his hometown of Clarksville, Tennessee. I had yet to interview a teenager for this podcast, and I knew I wanted to, but I also didn't want to. I was nervous to reach out. A young person with a terminal illness is just the most unimaginable thing. Maybe I would be overstepping. I was scared about how talking to Dylan might make me feel, and I knew that it would make me think of my own kids and imagine what it would be like if one of them were in his situation. But then I thought, if one of my kids were in his situation, I would want them to feel like people wanted to hear what they have to say, that people wanted to listen. So I reached out to Dylan's bonus mom, Susan Lawrence. I wrote an email and I hit send, took a deep breath, and then to my surprise, she responded. And she said that Dylan would like to be interviewed. He was feeling well at the time. My plan was to interview both Dylan and Susan, but then Dylan got too sick. Susan sent me a text on June 10th, the morning I was supposed to interview Dylan. The text said that Dylan had woken up that morning sounding like he had a mouth full of marbles. So Susan and I came up with different contingency plans, different ways that we could capture Dylan's voice even if he couldn't speak. Maybe she could be the one to interview him, the moment his slur was better. But things got worse for Dylan really quickly. He ended up dying just a couple weeks later, on June 25th, at the age of 17. So this was our final contingency plan. To carry out Dylan's voice after his death through Susan. In this episode, you're going to hear a lot about gratitude and a lot about a family's fierce love for their child. You're going to hear a lot about Dylan and who he was and how he and Susan talked about his illness. But you're also going to hear Susan talk in detail about Dylan's death. And for Susan, Dylan's death was difficult, traumatic, and horrifying. I wish it weren't this way. I wish that Susan could share that it was peaceful. Because a lot of deaths are. But I think part of talking about death and dying includes talking about the deaths that are less poetic. So this episode is going to be heavy. But if you're up for it, I invite you to listen. Take a deep breath afterwards. And then go do something that makes you feel grateful to be alive. Okay. So I'd love to just start by having you 
describe Dylan? Um, what was he like? He was kind, just a very sweet natured person. He was always that way. Um, I used to call him my little used car salesman. Uh, I was, Dylan and I had four children. Uh, My husband's name is also Dylan, so we have two Dylans. Mm -hmm. Um, So my husband, Dylan, and I had four children all in the house that were in elementary school. And uh, he went to work early in the morning, and I went to school a little bit later. So I dropped all the children off at school. I was a full-time college student at this period. And... I would be flustered in the morning getting the kids ready. You know, somebody's got peanut butter in their hair and somebody else can't find a shoe. And any parent who's been part of that hubbub of early morning trying to get everyone ready to go knows the chaos. Yes. And so we would get into the car and I would be flustered and, and frustrated. And Dylan would look over at me and he called me Susan at this point in uh, our lives together. Um, I am his bonus mom. Um, And he started calling me mom when he was about probably 13 or 14. But he looked at me and he said, Susan, you're so beautiful. And I would get a little little frustrated with him because he was so sort of like schmoozy, you know. And so I called him my little used car salesman. And with reflection he just he wanted to make people feel better that was his whole personality he wanted people to feel well he wanted them to be happy and um he had so much joy that it bubbled out of him Mm. you know he was I think that he was not a saint. He wasn't a perfect kid. He, you know, would get angsty and he would, you know, I mean, we got into a couple of arguments, but for the most part, he was a very respectful, kind, sweet kid. Um, mm-hmm. Not perfect by any means, but but he was um, a step above the rest of us, I think. Mm. Well, that's such a such a wonderful memory you have of him. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And I'm wondering if you have a memory that you can think of um, from when he was a teenager that when you think of it, you're just thinking, you know, that is so Dylan from when he was older. I think, so it's not a memory, but it is a series of photographs um, when I was organizing his memorial slideshow, I asked, I reached out and asked our community of of friends and family members um, and Dylan's friends to send me any pictures that they had. And I was overwhelmed with all of these pictures that I had never seen of Dylan. Mm. And I am not much of a picture taker. I, I certainly regret that now and would encourage people that if you're not a picture taker to try to take more pictures. Um, I have always been a live in the moment sort of person. And, and I'm I also took all of the pictures that we have. So I don't have a lot of pictures of Dylan and I together, and I wish that I did. But the what what came flooding to me when I when I reached out and made the request for these pictures were all of these pictures of Dylan just being so goofy. He <laughs> would have a big smile on his face or he would be making a face or he would be squatting down in front of a group of people. He really just set himself apart from the crowd. Um, And I don't even think he did it intentionally. He just, that's just who he was. He had a big, vivacious personality. Mm -hmm. And and that came out, you know, you asked me if there's one, there is a specific memory, actually. Um, 
he and his dad, we took him to Top Golf for his birthday. And he loved Top Golf or Mini Golf or anything but actually the sport of golf. <laughs> but if you if if you make the putter smaller, he was on board. And uh it's a video that I took of him and his dad dancing out of Top Golf. Um, and I'm so glad that I got that video because it just reflects, he didn't care what anybody thought about him. He was going to have a good time and the rest of the world be damned. And, and, um, that's how he lived his life. And he tried to bring people out of that self-consciousness into just have a good time because you're wasting your time if you're not. And that, that's pretty remarkable for a teenager to not care what anyone else thought. No, he just really didn't. Wow. Well, so if you could just tell me a bit about his diagnosis and, and what that was like hearing the news of his diagnosis. Sure. Um, so he started vomiting and he vomited just once a day for several days in a row. And we thought maybe he had a virus or an ear infection. He also complained of some that his vision was a little funny was the word that he used. Um, Blurry was another word he used. And so we thought he just had some bizarre illness. We hadn't left the house and this was in the middle of COVID. So we hadn't left the house in weeks. So we didn't think that he could be ill. Um, Because of COVID restrictions, Dylan wasn't able to see an in-person doctor right away. But when he did, the doctor was concerned about his symptoms, vomiting, double vision, feeling wobbly, high heart rate. And when the doctor saw him, he failed the neurological assessment. When she asked him to put his arms out to the side and walk heel to toe, he couldn't do it. He was falling over. And this was December 15th, I believe. And she said, you know, we're so close to Christmas. I want to do an MRI. I want to do a CT scan. I want to do all of these different tests and see what's going on. She said, I can schedule all of these tests, but you're probably not going to be able to get them in or not get all of them in before Christmas. And I said, well, should I just take him to Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, which is about 50 miles away from us? Mm -hmm. And she said, if that's what, if it was my child, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. And so that I took him right then. The emergency room at the children's hospital was uh, not not busy at all. We were taken right back to a room, and I think within 30 minutes of us being there, he was down at the MRI. Oh, wow. We were standing in the room together, and a doctor rushes in. I, I mean, that's the best and only way to describe it. He rushed into the room. I remember his coattails flapping, you know, his, his white coat flapping behind him. Mm-hmm. And he was typing on the computer, and he said we got the results of the MRI back and Dylan has a mass on his brain. And it was just like being punched in the gut. Hmm. You have this sensation that you can't quite draw enough air in to your body. And um, it also feels like you're moving through water unless you've been in a situation similar, you know, heard something shocking or seen something shocking. I, I don't know that you can really imagine it very well, but it is very specific. It's a very specific feeling. Mm-hmm. There were COVID restrictions. That was why I took Dylan to the hospital and his dad and I did not both take him because only one parent could be there. And so I remember I was standing by Dylan's bedside just in this state of shock and horror. And yeah. uh, I just... I thought, I need to hold his hand. 
you know, because he's sitting there reading the news. I was just kind of frozen, you know, for a few moments. And mm-hmm. so I walked over and grabbed his hand and, um, I'm, I'm a pretty hard person to rattle. Um, I just have a lot of fortitude because of things that I've been through in my own life. I told my mom later that I really believe that Dylan and I were put together for us to walk this journey together. Mm. So I I asked if my husband could come and they said, yes, he could. So I called my husband and he drove to Nashville. Um, I called Dylan's mom, Heather, and she flew the next day. We waited all night that night for, for a doctor to come in and talk to us. And Dylan's neuro-oncologist, Dr. Espen Shade, walked into the room about 9 a.m. and um, sat down and gave us this meandering explanation that Dylan had diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. Mm-hmm. We were just sitting there trying to absorb what he was telling us, and we understood that it was serious. We understood that Dylan had cancer. We understood that it was a brainstem tumor. We understood that... Um, it was inoperable, uh, that chemotherapy would not work because it couldn't pass through the blood brain barrier. Well, I say that we understood all of those things. We understand them now. I don't know how much of that we processed while we were sitting there, Mm -hmm. but I remember neither Dylan or I, my husband or I had any comprehension that it was terminal until Dr. Espen Shade said, we will contact Make-A-Wish and make sure that he gets, that they get to him urgently. And that's when we understood that it was terminal. You know, the the word terminal was never used in that conversation. I think that doctors have stopped using it. What they say about DIPG is that it has a 0% survival rate Mm. after five years and that the prognosis is usually six to eight or nine months after diagnosis. Hmm. Dylan lived for six months and nine days after he was diagnosed. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm wondering how knowing how serious it was based on the doctor's comment, how did you and Dylan talk about it with each other? So those conversations started The next day, he said, this all feels so surreal. And I said, you know, kiddo, what is going to feel surreal is how quickly this normalizes. I said, the amazing thing about our minds um, is that they cannot live in this state of shock and horror. So they find a way to adjust, you know. Mm -hmm. And we just kept moving forward until things felt normal and and they did pretty quickly um feel normal i mean you know when they first tell you that you're going to be driving 100 miles a day round trip to get a radiation treatment um every single day for 6 weeks that feels like it's going to be overwhelming but you just you just do it you have to be mm-hmm. there at the same time every day so you get up in the morning and you have your breakfast and you get dressed and uh Dylan vomited a lot that was his um most common symptom We learned what the best receptacle was for vomiting, which is a Tupperware container on the floor with a large black trash bag stretched over it and some paper towels in the bottom so it doesn't splash back up into your face. Mm. Um, We became vomiting experts. And I look at parents of children with disabilities and I'm in awe of their strength of how they do it every single day, every moment of every day. The fear that 
comes with living with a chronically ill child. Um, it's indescribable. It is. Um, but if you have healthy children, try to take a moment here or there when you can to, to really be in a moment of gratefulness for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am definitely, I'm in awe of you as well, just everything that you've been through. And I know that when we first talked, um, I was just so struck by how frankly you talked about Dylan's illness. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a bit, Um, just your reasoning for choosing really direct language when talking about it. Well, I would say, honestly, that the the choice was kind of taken out of our hands, and I'm glad that it was because Dr. Espenshade gave Dylan his prognosis. Mm. We were all sitting there together. We never had to make the decision of how much to tell him. And, of course, we would have told him everything because he was 16. He had his own phone. The moment he'd had some alone time, I'm sure he would have Googled it. And I never wanted him to feel... Like, he couldn't talk to us about what his fears were. Um, I never wanted him to be alone in that way because that is the worst sort of isolation that I could imagine is is having that fear and not being able to talk about it. I don't feel different than any other parent or any other mom trying to do the best that they can for their child in any situation. But to me, it didn't make sense to avoid you confront it head on. That's what you do. You accept reality and you move forward through it and you make the most out of the time that you have. And and that was just what came naturally to me. I, I, I know that different things come naturally to different people, but that's just what came naturally to me. I sort of pulled Dylan along with me because I felt like that was what was best for him. That was what was best for our family is to not dwell and get lost in grief. I I was not going to sacrifice a single moment of Dylan, not a single moment that he could smile or laugh or walk or eat or have control of his body or have fun. I wasn't going to sacrifice a single moment of that. And I wasn't going to let him sacrifice a single moment of that. And, you know, he did have times where he would get scared and we would sit down and we just talked through it together. That was just what felt right. It was what honored Dylan and his life and what he needed to do so that we could travel and he could see the things that he wanted to see and he could enjoy time with his siblings and with his friends and with his mom and with me and with his dad and his grandparents. And I didn't want him to lose any of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that someone had asked you once why you use the word terminal with Dylan. And I'm just wondering, did did you ever notice any sort of obvious uh, discomfort from other people in using more direct language? Or what was that like? <laughs> I... Um... I laugh because I don't even know if I noticed anyone else's discomfort. Mm-hmm. I, I, if it makes you uncomfortable, that's your problem. It's not mine. Um, I'm trying to do the best that I can for my son and to educate people also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember what you're discussing. We went into a store and we were talking to a very young, lovely young man um, there. And Dylan had just had a senior pictures made. Um And I was explaining to this young man that we just kind of hit it off with um, about why we were there and why it was so special, you know, that Dylan had terminal brain cancer and um, 
we he was getting ready to enter a, a clinical trial at Stanford and we had just got his pictures made and we're, we're glad to be out and doing those things and have hope. And, um, and he said, well, you know, don't say terminal. Why do you say terminal? And I say terminal because it's reality. Uh, shying away from it doesn't change it. It means shying away from it means that you don't accept it. You don't confront it. You don't find a way to process it and live with it. When you have something ugly like that, I think our natural reaction is to hide from it. My, mm. Mine is not. Mine is if something is in the dark and it's uncomfortable, let's drag it out into the sunshine and let's look at it <laughs> and let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, and also, I wanted people to know that Dylan had terminal cancer because I didn't want anybody to say, oh, champ, you're going to beat this or you're going to win this fight. Mm. No, he wasn't. Short of a medical miracle, he was not going to survive this. And we knew that from day two. On day one, we were told he had a mass in his brain. On day two, we were told that he was going to die. And I was very, I think, obviously very assertive <laughs> in not letting anyone bury that fact because it was, that was a reality that Dylan had to live with. You know, yeah. I'm sure that we could have cheerleaded and said, you're going to beat it, pal, or you're going to make it through this. We had hope. That's why we entered him into the clinical trial. Mm -hmm. We didn't focus on the fact that he had terminal cancer. It's not something we talked about every day. We lived our lives and tried to in enjoy our lives and enjoy Dylan. And then he went back to school after he finished his radiation treatment and after we went on some vacations, um, because that's what he wanted to do. He was looking forward to graduating from high school. He was looking forward to turning 18. We were hopeful that we would have a longer period of time with him. We were hopeful that one of these clinical trials would be groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened for Dylan, and it's not what has happened for any child with DIPG since it was first diagnosed. Neil Armstrong's daughter died of DIPG, I believe, in 1962, and there have been no medical advancements in treatment of DIPG since then. Mm. So not acknowledging all of that, especially when Dylan was old enough to have access to the internet to be talking to other kids who had Dylan, who had DIPG, and he did talk to other kids... Um, that would have just, in my opinion, for our son at his age and his maturity level, that would have been doing him a great disservice and not honoring the journey that he was on. Mm -hmm. And and I am obviously very um, passionate about that. <laughs> you have fierce love for him. I can tell. And protection also. Well, I th for me, love and protection go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, and so after his diagnosis, I mean, what... What did Dylan choose to focus on? And maybe I know you have something that you wanted to read from his journal, and maybe this is a good point if you want to read that. Sure, I absolutely will. So this is from Dylan's journal entry on March 4th, which was two days after his 17th birthday. If you're here looking for answers and help, I can't guarantee that I can help. The least I can do is tell you what I've learned that helps me. Just a few thoughts. Something my mom told me when we first heard the news. The doctor could have come into the room and told us, you have two weeks to live and there's nothing we can do to fix it. Take what time you have as a blessing. When it comes to what I have, at least, and he's speaking of DIPG here, it's common to be 12 at the oldest. Most cases are a lot younger. 
I can't possibly imagine being five or six and being told that you have a terminal illness. Be thankful for the time you've got. Lastly, I'm glad that it's me and not someone I care about. I'll throw up every day if it means my family or friends never have to. And I just think that that's so representative of who Dylan was as a person. Like I, my little used car salesman always, <laughs> he he thought of other people in a way that most people don't. He was willing to take on the burden because he felt he had the strength to bear it. And he would have never put it on someone else. Um, you know, it's it's to me reminds me of the kind of person who runs into a burning building or in front of a car to save someone else. It's just, you just, it's just who you are. It's just what you do. It, it, it's second nature. Mm. Um, and that's who he was. It was just second nature to him to, to bear the burden and the suffering and to he told my husband and I to go home when he was in the hospital he said I know you guys he said I know you guys are really tired why don't you go home and get some rest and it's like we really appreciate your sweet heart buddy but we are not leaving you this is there's nowhere else we want to be but you know he would go get something to eat you know get out of the room for a minute he was trying to take care of us he was always that way um I don't know how many conversations we had where and this is before he got diagnosed and after that it wasn't his job to take care of us it was our job to take care of him but that's just not who Dylan was he was a caretaker Mm. what a love he was yes I it has been the greatest honor of my life to be his mom it really has he, um, I know that I taught him some, him some things, but he repaid that in kind by teaching me. I tend to be very um, assertive, and uh, I don't really pay attention to other people's feelings very much. And he taught me how to do that. When he was first diagnosed, he said, within the first couple of days, because we sat down and we talked about what he wanted and what was important to him because we knew he had a limited amount of time and I I wanted him to decide what that time looked like, what he wanted to do. If he had wanted to stay home, that's what we would have done. Um, He wanted to go to Japan. That was the thing that he most wanted to do, but because of COVID, we just couldn't make it happen. Um, But so I said, give me a, give me something that's not Japan. And he said, Hawaii. So we went to Hawaii um, and we saw the sea turtles. And we went to the Grand Canyon and we went to Disney World. But he said he didn't, he said, I don't want my life to be pointless. That's what he said just a couple of days after he was diagnosed. And that has been, that's why I'm talking to you. That's why we have done everything that we've done for Dylan. Because we want to make sure that his life wasn't pointless. He's such a, an inspirational kid, um, such an inspirational person that I want people to hear his voice because it is inspiring. From the moment I met you and started learning about Dylan, I've just been amazed by your whole family and just the gratitude that you have all had. And I I think the note that you described from his journal, just this idea of being grateful. And is that something that's just been a special part of your family? Just gratitude? Gratitude is the most important tool that you can use to find joy 
in life, um, no matter what that life looks like, no matter how long it is. Um, when he was in the hospital and was first diagnosed, we were trying to process all of these, um, all of this information that we were going to lose him. And I was thinking about how afraid he had to be. I was thinking Mm. of myself at 17 and how terrified and isolated I would have felt that I was going to die. I mean, at 38 years old, if someone told me right now that I was going to die, boy, that is a, that is a, a quite the burden to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to draw him out of that and give him some perspective. And so those are the things we talked about. We talked about how most children who are diagnosed with DIAPG are between the ages of five and 10. Dylan is an outlier at 17. And I told Dylan, I said, you know, think about being five and having to be strapped down to the radiation table. That hits me in a way that nothing with Dylan ever really did because Dylan understood. He was old enough to understand what was happening to him. Um, And so that's one of the things that we grabbed onto with both hands and held onto was that there were things, even in the middle of this horrible situation, to be grateful for. And that that perspective was what was going to lead us out of the darkness and into the light, quite literally, Mm. to focus on what we had to be grateful for. You know, the fact that he was able to enjoy those vacations, you know, Um, one of the the things that I thought is, you know, he was 16 years old. He could have gotten into his truck one day and gone, left the house and gone out with friends and gotten into a car accident and been killed and never come home. And I wouldn't have had a chance to hug him and to tell him that I mm. love him. There is a blessing in terminal illness. Not that anyone would ever choose it, but there's a blessing in that you have the chance to repair relationships if that's what you need to do or to enjoy that other person to tell them that you love them and I just feel like Dylan could have been diagnosed at the age of 10 and so I look at the seven years that we were given with him as years that we were given with him and I tried to pass that along to to Dylan and to our other children I I would never judge anyone who stayed who said this isn't fair this why is this happening to me what did I do I would never judge that person because I understand that but I wanted Dylan to move past that mm-hmm. I, I wanted him to enjoy the time that he had here and he did let's take a moment here and think that this is a mother who knew she was going to lose her child and she was still able to find gratitude. And what was it like the just the weeks leading up to his death? I mean, did that gratitude shift or I mean, what was the overall feeling for everybody and it all happened so fast. Time changes when you're in the middle of something traumatic. I remember a day would pass and it felt like three or four days. I I really could not wrap my mind around the fact that it had only been 24 hours Mm. because it felt interminable. Sometime at the beginning of June, within the first or second week of June, Dylan got a headache one night. And it was this headache that would be the beginning of the final phase of Dylan's life. So there was the headache, 
Then other symptoms followed. Dylan got an MRI on June 7th. His doctors at the time thought he had a mild case of radiation necrosis, not tumor progression. Dylan's symptoms worsened on June 10th, and if you remember, this was the day that I was supposed to interview him. The doctors thought he would get better on steroids. But on Saturday, June 12th, Dylan had to go to the ER. I think Saturday I took him to the emergency room because he stopped being able to move the left side of his face. Um, He smiled and his his smile wouldn't respond. Um, And he didn't want to stay in the hospital. And his doctors, he had a wonderful, wonderful set of doctors. I just can't say enough good things about them. He wanted to go home. He didn't want to stay in the hospital. He hated the hospital. He hated having an IV. So they sent him home Saturday. on a, they gave him IV doses, high IV doses of steroids, um, mm-hmm. and his smile came back. So we were very, we thought, okay, we just, the, the low dose of steroids for the last few days has not been doing the trick. We just need to up it. We're going to take him home, and he's going to start to get better. But the thing is, Dylan didn't get better. On Monday, June 14th, Dylan left the hospital and started in-home hospice care. By the time he left the hospital, he had completely lost the use of his left side. He couldn't move his left arm. He couldn't move his left leg. He couldn't go to the bathroom on his own. We were watching him die right in front of our eyes. We didn't know it at that Mm -hmm. point, but that's what was happening. When we brought him home on Monday, he said, this is not the quality of life that I want. And I said, I hear you loud and clear, kid. The doctors still believed that he had radiation necrosis. They still believed that high doses of steroids would help him, but he was getting, he didn't want to be locked in his body. And I, his dad, his mom and I were a team through this whole terrible six months. And um, we were all on the same page that Dylan got to make the choices about his life, about his treatment, about what he wanted to do. He was, he was almost an adult, you know, he was just a few months, a year, but a few months shy of being 18 where Mm -hmm. he could have made his own decisions and nothing that we would have said or done would have mattered. And so we respected his autonomy Mm -hmm. um, over his body and his choices. And so we said, okay, what do you want to do? And he said, He said, I just don't want to live like this. And we said, okay, can you give it, will you give it a week? Will you give the steroids a week? You know, the doctors really, his doctor came in and talked to him and said, I hear you. I know you don't want to, you don't want to live this way. I really believe that the high doses of steroids will help. And he said, okay, I'll give it a try. I think he was ready. I think he was readying himself to die on, I think he knew I don't even, I don't know if it was consciously or subconsciously. I think somehow he knew that he wasn't going to come through this. I think he hoped that he would, but I think, you you know, your own body better than anybody else, you Mm -hmm. know, by the middle of the next week, Dylan, Heather and I, and Dylan all knew that he was going to die. We still really hoped, especially his mom really, really hoped that we were wrong, but we just really felt like nothing was working so we told our families that they needed to come and say goodbye Mm. and um his doctor came out on a monday so this would be monday june 21st so it it was one week 
exactly after we brought him home from the hospital and a week and a day since he'd started the steroids. And we said, we don't think she's getting, he's getting better. We think he's dying. And she said, I agree. Even when you know that it still feels like someone takes your breath away. You know, you still, even though, you know, you want somebody to argue with you. So we talked to Dylan and, um, he said that he wanted to stop taking all of his medication on Friday. And we said, okay. So his doctor on Monday ordered uh, Versed and Dilaudid. Um, one of them is a sedative and the other is the painkiller to make sure that he would be under uh, and would not be aware of what was going on. Um, and we would stop giving him his steroid and we would stop feeding him and um, stop giving him water and we would let his body shut down. So, But then Dylan woke up on Tuesday morning, the day after his visit with his doctor, and he felt worse. On Tuesday morning, he woke up and he had lost the use of his right hand. Mm. That was the only way he had to communicate with us. He hadn't spoken in days. Uh, he was typing on his iPad. And so Tuesday morning, we woke up and he had lost his ability to communicate. So his dad and his mom and I went in with him and I held his iPad up. And I would go through each of the three rows um, one by one, I was, I would say one, two or three, and he would nod at the right one. And that was the row that I would choose. And then we would go letter by letter and he would nod when I was at the right letter. And he told us that he wanted to die, hmm. that he was ready, that he didn't want to wait until Friday. He was, he was finished. He was done. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was, he couldn't communicate anymore. His, and you could just see the defeat in his eyes um mm. and so we called all of our families and uh everybody got to facetime with him and tell him how much they loved him and he couldn't talk but he would take his hand and he would put it over his heart and he would pat his heart to say mm. i love you or i love you too and i just remember him he he did that over and over and over again to me and to his mom and to his dad and uh I told him, I said, we know you have lived your life in a way that tells everyone who loves you and everyone that you love how much you love them. I said, you need to know that we know how much you love us and you know how much we love you. And that is a gift. That is a gift that I am so grateful for that he knew how much we loved him, <laughs> how much everyone loved him. And that he was special. So Tuesday night, his hospice nurse came out. Um, she was wonderful. Her name is Karen, and we just love her so dearly. Uh, and his palliative care doctor, Tracy, um, we also love her dearly. She's the one who came out to the house. And uh, um, so she gave him everything that he needed to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. So Tuesday night... Uh, I think it was finally about 8 o'clock after she got everything hooked up. And we kept telling Dylan, you know, that we loved him and that we were so proud of him. Mm -hmm. And that he could rest and that he could go, that he had our permission to go. You know, we had that conversation with him and we said, you just, you just let go the moment you're ready. Don't hang out here for us. We're, mm -hmm. we're ready to see you break free of your prison of a body. So she started the IV. And she said, you know, he won't be gone immediately. He'll still be able to hear you. And, you know, they say that that's one of the last things to go. So 
our, our other children, our three teenagers, um, we flew them out to Michigan to stay with their grandparents while we were going through this last phase of Dylan's life with him. We didn't want the kids to be, gosh, when you're on hospice care in your home, it, it, your whole home is filled with tension and sorrow and death and nerves and, and it's almost tangible. It really is. Um, there's this sick feeling in the air and we wanted the kids to be in the sunshine and to play and to laugh. And that was what Dylan wanted. Um, <laughs> And they sat with him the last day that he was awake and they watched movies and they told him that they loved him and they hugged him and he said goodbye to them and they left. And that was what he wanted. We, we talked about it. He would have sent us away, I think, if he could have. Mm. Um, that was just the kind of person he was. Mm. Tuesday night, I sat with him from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And his mom came in from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then my husband sat with him from 6 a.m. until Heather and I got up. And Tuesday night, he would open his eyes really wide. And his eyes were so blue. They were just arresting. He had the most beautiful eyes. And he would open his eyes and he would just stare into the room. And I would talk to him. He wouldn't respond to me. It wasn't like he was, it was like he was looking through everything that was there. Mm-hmm. And his mom sat with him from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. She said that he opened his eyes several times and looked around the room like he was looking at something that was there that she couldn't see. Mm. I think he might have opened his eyes once or twice on Wednesday morning. But that was the last time. He never opened his eyes after that. Mm-hmm. He died on Friday at 2.12 p.m. I think Wednesday around noon, we fed him and gave him water for the last time uh, on his doctor's, you know, instruction. Mm-hmm. I, I remember Wednesday morning, I, I, I went in and I opened up all the doors to his room and I opened up all the blinds to let the light in and I lit candles and we played music on his phone and um, his playlist on his phone and just felt very peaceful, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we were ready to let him go and we would hold his hand and talk to him and tell him that we loved him and, um, you know, that it was okay that he could go and... Uh, I would say that Wednesday afternoon was probably the last time that I had gratitude in my heart for several days um, Mm. because his young, strong, healthy 17-year-old body just wouldn't stop fighting. Thursday, probably around 11 a.m., his mom and I were sitting in there talking together and his oxygen was really good. And I said, should we take his oxygen off? And she said, yes. She said that will help him die more quickly, mm-hmm. um, which is what we wanted. That is what we wanted. And that is what Dylan wanted. We, we wanted him to die. He wanted to die. And, and we supported him fully in that decision. There was no point in him staying. There was no point in him breathing just to breathe. He was gone or at the very least was stuck in his own body, um, which is not, it just, it, it wasn't what he wanted. If he could have lived six more months like that, he wouldn't have wanted to. So we, took his oxygen off and immediately his his oxygen started to his oxygen rate started to decline and it just got lower and lower and his pulse got higher and higher so his oxygen was in the 40s and the 30s around Thursday afternoon he started running a fever his fever got up to 106.3 oh, and um 
it just every hour felt like a day. I, I just I can't even describe adequately. I, I was so horrified by what I was witnessing. Mm. His death was not dignified. It was not graceful. I think I wrote a Facebook post sometime on Thursday that said there are no angels in this room. Mm. He is not surrounded by light. There is the stench of death and fear and terror in this room. Mm. And that's, I watched my grandfather die um, and it was nothing like how Dylan died. When you are young and strong and healthy and your body doesn't have a reason to stop fighting, the only problem is this tumor in your brain that's pressing on the wrong things. I understand all of that logically now, but I felt like I was being tortured Mm. from, you know, Wednesday evening through to Friday when he finally died. Thursday night, I messaged his doctor asking, what can I do that's legal? And she said, well, you can lay the head of his bed down, you know, and that will put, it will put pressure on his tumor, which will put pressure on his brain. And also it will be harder for his lungs to, to breathe. It will put stress on his lungs and on his heart. And so I did that. And um, it is such an unnatural feeling to not feed your child mm. and Good. to try and help your child die. I kept wanting to give him a bath and I kept asking the hospice care nurse and Tracy, I said, you know, should I, I, because he was drooling and I didn't want him to smell bad and I didn't want him to be uncomfortable and I wanted him to be clean and fresh. And they said, we don't want to disturb him. We don't want to rouse him. His face was relaxed the whole time. His hands and his feet are relaxed. His body wasn't tense. And his doctor said, reassured us over and over again that that was, those were all signs that he was comfortable that he wasn't hurting and that he wasn't aware of what was going on you know they have to reassure you over and over that you're doing the right thing you know I got irrationally angry at him at some point you know just just die kiddo just Mm -hmm. go it's okay it's okay just go Thursday night into Friday morning is I, I just can't really imagine a worse time After I laid his bed back, he started what is commonly referred to as a death rattle. Mm. And so I told his doctor, uh, she said, well, sit up his bed, sit his bed back up and see if that helps. And so I did. It didn't help. So I laid his bed back down. And um, that's what he sounded like for close to 18 hours, probably. They call them agonal breaths. um, When you take these gasping breaths and then let them out and then gasping breaths. And then uh, I think they're called agonal breaths because they're agonizing. That's certainly what it felt like to me and to Heather. I think we're all in shock and just overwhelmed. Heather remembered that we had gotten a video baby monitor. So Mm -hmm. we put the video monitor in there with Dylan and we went out and sat on the couch and we watched a movie together. Um, And we had the video monitor so that we could watch Dylan and make sure that he was still breathing. But we had to get out of that room. We didn't want to leave him completely alone, but we needed to get out of that room. Mm -hmm. And over the course of those hours from Wednesday afternoon into Thursday, his face turned gray. His lips turned blue, his fingers turned blue, his toes turned blue. His legs and his feet and his hands and his arms were ice cold, but the rest of his body was just, I mean, you could put your hand a few inches away from him and feel the heat radiating off of him because he was so hot. But it was like you couldn't hold his hand because it was so cold. And you couldn't put your hand on his chest because he was so hot. It just, 
you're seeing a dead person who just happens to still be breathing. Mm. Friday around noon or one, Heather and I were sitting in the room together. My husband had left the room to go get, to go make a sandwich and he was standing in the kitchen eating it. And Dylan tried to take a breath and the force that his body exerted lifted his chest off the mattress, but his shoulders stayed on the mattress. So it looked like he was, it looked like he was being defibrillated because his chest was straining so hard to get that breath in. Then he relaxed and then it happened again and he relaxed and um, he wasn't breathing. And so Heather and I stared at him for probably 30 seconds waiting for him to take another breath, Mm -hmm. 45 seconds waiting for him to take another breath. And I told Heather, I said, I think this is it. And she said, I do too. And so I went, I ran and got Dylan and he came back into the room and Dylan's heart was beating so fast that you could see it in his stomach. It was like a butterfly. Oh, and so we watched and we watched and the butterfly got slower and slower and slower. And my husband picked up Dylan's wrist and he said his heart is still beating and it slowed and it slowed. And he said, I can't feel his heart anymore. Hmm. So I went to get ice, pre-prepared bags of ice from the freezer. And I brought them back in because we had to pack Dylan's head in ice. Um, He was an organ donor, and he also um, wanted his tumor to be uh, given to Stanford for research. Um, Mm -hmm. So we had to pack his head in ice to make sure that 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 was preserved. So we, I packed the, my husband and I packed the ice under his head. We got the sheet that we had had prepared, and we covered him with the sheet and told him we loved him. And I turned around one final time. My husband was right behind me. And I was standing in his doorway, and I said, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. Hmm. And he took this huge gasping rattle from underneath the sheet. And I think I screamed. And I ran over and pulled the sheet down from his face, and my husband picked his wrist wrist up. And he said, oh, my God, his heart is beating again. Hmm. The chaplain for our hospice, um, we're not a religious family. Uh, Heather is, but but my husband and I and Dylan were not. The chaplain for the hospice had called earlier that day and asked if she could come. uh, And I told her, she said, you know, it's it's not, I'm not going to talk about religion or anything. I just want to be there to support you. She said, I'm also a death doula, so I'm I'm just there to support you. Mm -hmm. And so I told her to, you know, to come. And um, she showed up and she was standing in the living room. And as I was walking into the living room from Dylan's room, Heather said, he's gone. He just died. And I said, Heather, he took a breath and his heart started beating again. And now he's breathing again. And she said, are you fucking kidding me? Mm. And she ran back into his room. And I I didn't even really process it. I turned around to follow her. And the (laughs) poor chaplain, Sherry, was standing at the door. And she said, is it okay if I come back with you? And I said, of course. Like, I wasn't even, I couldn't understand what was happening Mm -hmm. in that moment. So she came and she sat with us and she held Dylan's hand and was totally unflappable, like was unfazed by what had just happened and was very calm and just, if it hadn't been for her, that happened four more times, or it happened three more times. It happened four times total in about an hour and a half while Sherry sat with us, um, where we really thought that Dylan was dead. And then he would take this huge rasping gasp for breath Mm. I I assume that what happened is that his heart would slow to the point that it was indecipherable to us 
And then that electrical signal in your brain that's in charge of keeping you alive yeah. would send out, uh, it's called a myclonic jerk when you're sleeping and your, your breath starts to slow and your heart rate starts to slow and your body temperature starts to drop. And those are natural things that when you sleep, well, sometimes your brain misinterprets it as you dying and it sends out this electrical surge to mm. your body to kind of get everything. Hey, hey, are you okay? Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably what happened with his body because he had the only thing that killed him was this tumor just in the right part of his brain with a lot of um, distance and reflection from the situation. I can understand that now in a way that I couldn't understand it while it was happening. I was just so horrified and traumatized by what was happening. I I can't describe it in words that Mm. do it justice. So finally, Dylan took his last breath at 2.12 p.m. on Friday and... um, my husband and I packed his head and ice, covered him up with a sheet. And I remember my husband turning off the light and leaving the room. And I I wanted to go back and turn the light on because I didn't want to leave him in the dark. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't bring myself to go back into the room. And so we stood outside of, in the living room for maybe a minute or two. Um, the chaplain was calling the hospice to let them know that they needed to come. And I was standing there with Heather, and she said, I have to go check and make sure that he didn't start breathing again. Mm. So she did. She was in the room for, I don't know, maybe a minute or two and came back out. And she said, no, he's not breathing. And I said, okay. We all felt relief. Just this great sense of relief that he was gone. And the reason that I tell this long, sordid story that ended this wonderful life in this beautiful, brilliant person is because no family should ever have to sit through that if they don't want to. If the person is ready to go and it is their choice to go, you should be able to die with dignity. Um, I don't think anything in this world would have upset Dylan more than knowing how horrified we were watching him struggle to die. Because that's what he was doing. He was trying to die and his body wouldn't let him. I sat in his room Thursday night and wondered if I was a coward for not having the courage to put a pillow over his face. Because everything in my body was screaming at him to help him die. Because I don't know that he suffered. I have to tell myself that he didn't, but I don't know. Was he in there in pain? Could he feel what was happening to him? There's no way to answer that. Dylan is the only one who will ever know the answer to that question. And... I have to believe that he didn't suffer because otherwise I would go insane. I would lose my mind. And you shouldn't have to go through that if you choose not to. If you're of sound mind and you have a terminal illness, if we could have told Dylan goodbye on Tuesday night and told him that we loved him and his doctor could have prescribed some medication that would have just sent him to sleep and then stopped his heart, um, that would have been absolutely the best for everyone involved. I'm I'm just so so sorry you all went through that and I just I wonder what it's like for you talking talking about Dylan talking about this I be, I believe that Dylan's life had a purpose and I believe that his death had a purpose also I know that Dylan would be so angry at me if I didn't use this horror to advocate for death with dignity I am speaking with our state legislators here in Tennessee and getting people together to start a movement um, for Tennessee and eventually, I hope, for the United States so that no one has to suffer through this before. And that's how I deal with it. 
suffering happens, horrible things happen. It's our obligation, I believe, to do something about that. I believe that people don't talk about these things because they want to hide from them. They want to leave them in the dark and pretend that they don't exist. And I think that when there's something that is hiding in the dark that is unspeakable and scary and tragic, we need to drag it into the sunshine and examine it because those are the things that we most need to talk about. When you confront things like that, you take your power back, you take your control back, and you can begin processing what makes this so tragic and what can help make it less tragic. Mm-hmm. Sherry, our chaplain, if she hadn't been here, I don't know what we would have done without her. I, I feel... Like I said, I'm not a religious person. I don't know what my personal beliefs are. Dylan was an atheist. Um, We had many conversations about what he thought was going to happen after he died. Mm -hmm. He said, I think it's like blackness. You just, nothing, nothing happens after you die. There's just nothing. And I said, okay. I said, does that scare you? And he said, yes. And I said, well, when you go to sleep, is it that same blackness? And he said, yeah. And I said, you don't remember being asleep while you're asleep, right? You don't know that you're asleep. Mm. And he said, no. And I said, well, if that's what happens to us when we die, we're not aware of it. I said, I think it's really difficult for our conscious brains to understand. The first law of thermodynamics is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred. And I can't think of anything more energetic than the human consciousness or than Dylan. He was a super energetic kid. Mm. Um, Just that, that big smile and the, the spirit that that smile came from. That's a powerful energy. And so I told him that when I think of him moving on into whatever incomprehensible thing happens after we died, I said, I see you as a sea turtle. He loved sea turtles. Um, I see you as a sea turtle swimming through these deep ocean waters, free and unfettered and having this amazing experience that we can't comprehend right now. And he said, he broke down into tears and he said, I don't want to be a sea turtle. I want to be me. And I just held him while he cried. So it's all very heavy. Yeah. But what I come back to to ground myself is that I am so Oh gosh, I'm so glad I got to be part of his life. I am so glad that I got to know him. I'm so glad that I got to hear his laughter and see his smile and I am proud to be his advocate always. Mm-hmm. Always. Um that any pain that he went through or any suffering, I will fight until I draw my last breath, making sure that that has purpose and that his life had purpose and that his death has purpose. Mm-hmm. That is the best way that I can honor Dylan. The only way that I can honor him. Well, and I know that he, uh, the memorial service or the celebration of life happened fairly recently and um I know did Dylan choose the name for it (laughs) which I just think is the most brilliant (laughs) thing ever and if you could share that absolutely so uh we were having these deep conversations and I asked if he wanted to plan his memorial service and he said I don't want people to be sad um 
And I said, well, kiddo, people are going to be sad. And here's the thing. Grief, that sadness is a testament to our great love for you and our joy that you are here with us and our sadness that you're not or that you won't be anymore. I said, if you take away people's sadness, you take away some of their love too. I said, so you have to be okay with people being sad because they're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you so much. Um, And he processed that and he said, okay. And he said, I want, he said, I still want my memorial service to be a party. He, He didn't want it to be like an adult's funeral service, you know, very dry and somber Mm -hmm. um he said I want it to be a party and I said that's gonna be the worst party ever (laughs) and so he we picked that up as a family and ran with it Dylan's worst party ever (laughs) it's hard to know what to say here after this interview I felt both in awe of Susan's fortitude and a weight of sadness The air around me somehow felt thicker. It's just so heart-wrenching to hear about a parent losing their child, especially when the death didn't feel peaceful. Young people shouldn't die, but the reality is, sometimes they do. I couldn't help but think, what if, with my own children? So I went and found my kids, and I gave them a huge hug. And I felt so grateful that they're healthy and strong. I didn't want to let them go. As Susan said, gratitude is a powerful tool. It can help us find some light, even in the midst of darkness. Since my conversation with Susan, I've also been thinking a lot about how death can be so many different things to different people. It's not just about how the dying person experiences it but also how the other people in the room do. Dylan's doctors reassured Susan that Dylan was not suffering, but Susan was suffering. But she has taken this suffering and turned it into purpose. It's incredible how people have the capacity to transform pain into something meaningful. Thank you again to Susan for letting me enter into this space with you and for sharing your remarkable child with us. I've got my hand on my heart for you and your family. And as always, thank you to my listeners for joining me in these conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Dylan and Susan, you can check out the Dreams for Dylan Facebook page. You can also email Susan at dreamsfordylan at yahoo.com if you want to learn more about DIPG, childhood cancers, or Susan's advocacy efforts for death with dignity. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. Take good care. <laughs>